0: What new developments has Mumia Abu-Jamal undergone in recent weeks? Are authorities within the system deliberately trying to kill him? Why did the death of George Floyd generate so much attention in the press while media attention to Mumia Abu-Jamal has been virtually insignificant? What is the Move family achieving now that the Move 9 are free and the anniversary of the bombing of their home in 1985 is approaching? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are continuing our conversation on racial justice in America by shining the majority of our spotlight on the long time political prisoner Mumia Abu Jamal. In our first half hour, Suzanne Ross of the International Concern, Family and Friends of Mumia Abu Jamal brings us a few updates on his health following his surgery and the plight of his legal situation. In our second half hour, we are joined by professor and activist Johanna Fernandez to help us explore further Mumia's case through the lens of racialized policing. Our final guest, Mike Africa Jr., talks about the long-standing issues facing his family and the approach taken to fight the racial oppression facing his group, Mumia, and others in 2021. On this week's program, Let Mumia Out, exploring racial justice as the sun sets over George Floyd. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 7th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied an Anishinaabe Gaki, the homeland of the Metis and historical territory of the Nahiwaka and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. One of the world's most prominent medical doctors with expertise in treating COVID-19 has gone on the record with a scathing rebuke of the U.S. government's approach to fighting the virus. He says the government's strategy carried out in cooperation with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the United Nations World Health Organization has resulted in tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths and is now being followed up with thousands more deaths caused by a mass injection program. Dr. Peter McCullough, in a 32-minute interview with journalist Alex Newman, said if this were any other vaccine, it would have been pulled from the market by now for safety reasons. McCullough holds the honor of being the most cited medical doctor on COVID-19 treatments at the National Library of Medicine, with more than 600 citations. He has testified before Congress and won numerous awards during his distinguished medical career. That comes from the article, Highly Cited COVID Doctor Comes to Stunning Conclusion, Government Scrubbing Unprecedented Numbers of Injection-Related Deaths, by Leo Holman, posted May 4th, originally published at leohoman.com. The family of 35-year-old Anne Van Geest released a statement following her death on April 19th. It is with profound sadness that we share the news of Anne's passing as the result of complications after receiving the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine. Anne, or Annie, who was 35, was a loving mother, wife, sister, and daughter, an active member in the animal rescue community, Annie will be remembered as a fierce advocate, a master multitasker, and a caring friend by her colleagues, fellow volunteers, and family. We ask for privacy for her family as they mourn Annie's passing and celebrate her life. That comes from the article, Experimental Adenovirus COVID Injections Continuing to Kill Younger Middle-Aged People by Brian Shilhevi, posted May 4th, originally published at Health Impact News. As of August 23rd, 2020, the CDC reported 161,392 fatalities caused by COVID-19. Had the long-standing original guidelines for death reporting been used, there would have only been 9,684 total fatalities due to COVID-19. The CDC violated federal law as the Paperwork Reduction Act requires data collection and publication to be overseen by the Office of Management and Budget. Proposed changes must be published in the Federal Register and be open to public comment. None of these transparency rules were followed. That comes from the article, CDC Violated Law, Inflated COVID-19 Cases and Fatalities, How Deaths Are Reported, by Dr. Henry Ely and Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted May 4th, originally published on the Mercola site. Once again, it is not the virus, but the spike protein and the autoimmune response. Finally, Chen acknowledges that the new vaccines quote program our cells to manufacture the same coronavirus spike protein as a way to trigger our bodies to produce antibodies to the virus unquote the production and distribution of these potentially lethal injections goes way beyond mere recklessness this is an unprecedented global catastrophe that could result in the deaths of millions How long will this insanity continue? That comes from the article New Report Sheds Light on Vaccine Doomsday Cult by Mike Whitney, posted May 4th, originally published on The UNS Review. Mumia Abu-Jamal, former Black Panther and journalist, was accused of the murder of Daniel Faulkner in the face of numerous examples of police and lawyers rigging the system against him. He's approaching the 40th anniversary of the event in December. He's now in a prison infirmary suffering from hep C, cirrhosis, a heart attack, and now COVID. Advocates are now saying the time has come to push harder than ever for his freedom. Suzanne Ross is a New York City-based clinical psychologist, longtime anti-imperialist activist, and representative of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She joined us now to share more of his medical, legal, and political situation.
1: Mumia um, had the surgery, the open-heart surgery. It seems to have been successful. Um, He, um, you know, as it's defined medically he's back in the prison in the uh, infirmary and he will be there for a while because he obviously is recovering from major surgery. Um, The situation of course, once not only, not only is the infirmary not the most inspiring of confidence because he has gotten very sick there in the past and they don't always do the right things. So, um, It's not a great situation. And uh, as you know, uh, Mumia on top of the, before the heart surgery already had COVID. And so he was subjected to that and pri and they didn't, uh, they, you know, he diagnosed himself and they insisted he didn't have it. And finally, when we all made a big fuss, they took him to a hospital and the hospital said he was right. He did have COVID. In addition, of course, he has the vestiges of the hepatitis C situation. So he has cirrhosis of the liver and he has this uh, horrible skin um, disease that is very, very painful and um, he itches all the time and needs to, he's extremely uncomfortable. So, uh, and the fact that Momia is 67 years old without, um, with conditions prison conditions, not not the kind of conditions if you or I had a heart problem of that seriousness, we would do everything to alter our environments to minimize the risk of exacerbation of the heart disease. But of course, he doesn't have that kind of control. He doesn't have that control over his diet. He doesn't get enough exercise, enough fresh air, uh, not to mention stress, which is such a big factor in heart disease and so many diseases, and it's hard not to have stress (laughs) with the kind of conditions that MUMI is living under. So that's the health situation. During
0: our last interview with Suzanne Rost, we talked about the case in December of 2018 when Judge Tucker had decided to grant an appeal based on the failure of Judge Ronald Castile to recuse himself. Castile had previously passed judgment on the case as the DA and should have bowed out of the state of Pennsylvania Supreme Court, on which Castile now sat as a Supreme Court judge. Advocates for Mumia were encouraged by the news of an appeal being granted, but it was challenged by DA Larry Krasner, a progressive lawyer. Suzanne now explains what ended up happening to Krasner's petition.
1: A progressive law student group at Yale University disinvited him from speaking based on his ruling on Mumia's case on his papers, the the papers he filed, and um, um, they disinvited Krasner and had Mumia speak instead at this law conference, whereupon Krasner withdrew his objection. He said, okay, he withdrew the objection. So it's a good example of what political pressure, and it was a big embarrassment to him because he was like, you know, they were inviting him to be the keynote speaker and they actually disinvited him. So that was very important and a good thing. At any rate, so the appeals process now potentially could move ahead. The legal brief that he filed, that Krasna filed um, is horrendous, horrendous, shocking to anybody rational who would think that someone who has made his career on calling himself progressive would say that Mumia's case was that there was absolutely 100% proof that he was guilty. You know, ignoring the judge in the case, ignoring so many contradictory witnesses, so many issues that challenge the validity of this conviction and of the whole appeals process. I mean, the idea that he would simply say 100% no evidence. You know, this is a closed door. Closed door, and everything that is challenged was um, filed too late. Anything that seems like it might be an opening, it's too late to appeal. That has been appealed before, and so completely ignoring the corruption of the entire process. The fact that the ju- they would rule constantly against showing evidence, introducing evidence that should have been introduced. That uh information you know photographs that totally contradict uh, the prosecution's version of what happened the narrative it's called the photo fo- if you have heard not heard about it it's the, they're called the palakoff photographs um and somewhat apolitical uh uh photographer went to the scene soon after the incident where mumia, where the cop was killed and mumia was nearly killed and took some photographs and he made them he offered them numerous times to the prosecution the prosecution said no thank you but did not tell the defense about it these pictures are amazing number 1 the key witness is not where he said he's not even to be seen on this on the scene and he um, um that's number one. Number two, the taxi he said he was in is not is not where he said it was. Um, the chief, the head, the chief policeman who was in charge of the investigation on the scene is seen handling the gun with um, hands without any gloves. Um, it's just endless violation. That the, uh, the hat. Faulkner's hat, which was supposedly in one space place is not in that place, you know, mysteriously moved its place. So those photographs are very significant, but they never were included in the in the appeals process because it was the information was not shared with uh, the defense. And by the time the defense raised it, they said, oh, too late. So that's just one thing. Now, there are a couple of key issues in the case. There are a lot of issues. There's so many issues. But first, let me just say something about Krasner. Since you asked about that, I want to make clear what's outrageous about Krasner's. uh, First of all, the very argument that Mumi is guilty without any doubt is outrageous, because anyone who was in who has studied this case at all, including Amnesty International, including hundreds of lawyers and all kinds of people around the world have said, hey, this wasn't even a trial. A lot of, a lot of people put a question mark next to trial, and uh, Amnesty International said it didn't meet the minimal standards of international law on what's considered a fair trial. And went through example of ex- issue after issue, the involvement of the Police. The fact that the police campaigned so heavily for Mumia's killing, Fry Mumia was not a, a secret. Fry Mumia was the slogan that was out there by the police put out all the time. And um, all of that um, is raised in Amnesty International's report, the 2000 report, 2000-year 2000 report. So um, now... The issues that the Mumia's lawyers are focusing on are, uh, so there's been a big campaign, a political campaign against Krasna, but it's a very complicated campaign because he's running against two right wingers and all kinds of pe- uh, arguments are at this that we can't afford to have Krasna lose um, lose in this because it would be a setback for progressive lawyering and progressive DAs like of Boudin in California and so on to have uh, Krasner, who's the most well-known of all of them, lose this race. On the other hand, he's winning mm-hmm. by obvious, if he wins, he's winning by obviously succumbing to police pressure, because Obvi- he's got, he's no fool. He's got to know that what he's saying is ridiculous. He's a smart guy and he's for him to say it's an open and shut case is outrageous. So we have spoken out against him, acknowledging that he's done some good things, you know, not trying to portray him as a monster, but rather as a sellout, (laughs) you know, you may call that a monster or you may not because so many people are sellouts and under the pressure of the Fraternal Order of Police, it's understandable because they tried to get him uh, I started saying it, but w- there's so much to say about this case that I shifted gears that the case was postponed by about by close to a year, this whole process, because the police filed for him to be removed from the case, for Krasner to be removed from a Crick case, claiming that he was super prejudiced in favor of Mumia. He then swore up and down that he wasn't he, that he uh, believes on me as guilty and that uh, in no way does he feel he's here to try to get him acquitted or reevaluated on the issue of his guilt. So um, that's how far Krasna had to go to appease the police. And so they finally ruled, okay, he can go ahead. It was an absurd uh, argument the fraternal police, plus the widow, the so-called widow, Maureen Faulkner. I can't remember her last name, her remarried name. Uh, but anyway, they argued uh, that Krasner should be removed from the case. And ultimately, he wasn't. But the handwriting was on the wall that they're going to do everything to screw Krasner if he goes shows the slightest, the slightest evidence of any kind of acknowledgement of the issues that have been raised by Mumia's lawyers over the last 30 years and by the movement and so on and so on. So the issues they're now, um, they're now fighting, they're, they're, the, Mumia's lawyers have now filed based on evidence that was discovered ironically by Krasner in one of those back rooms in the DA's office, they found 30 boxes and when they went through them there were several issues that stood out that had been raised before but now with more substantial evidence. So um, the lawyers just filed papers for that about a month ago but the process is extremely slow in the courts and Mumia is still very ill and recovering and an elder with all these symptoms and all these illnesses. And we think they're gonna to try to drag it out as long as possible so that Mumia dies in prison. And we're trying to figure out how to push this case uh, to be addressed more fairly quickly so that Mumia does not die in prison. So that's the, now the issues are the following. The, I'll tell you, uh, I won't raise all of them, but the two that are considered the most dramatic. When in 1986, um, a decision was made um, in in the United States for you know a nas- on the whole national scene of called the Batson decision, and the Batson decision referred to the use of uh, racial prejudice of race race in selecting um, in the jury process, and um, the uh, ruling is that the prosecution or the defense, for that matter, cannot object to a peremptory challenge. Is when you don't have to give the reasons for why you're challenging a particular jury. So these jurors come up and you say no, no, no. Well, they said no, no, no to eleven out of the fifteen uh, peremptory ch- eleven out of the fifteen peremptory challenges by the prosecution were of black people clearly showing a bias against a racial bias. And that bias now automatically guarantees you a new trial. So it was raised before it went all the way up to the Third Circuit. They, um, there were three judges, two of them thought it did not warrant, could not be considered a Batson violation. The third ju- ju- judge blasted it, Judge Ambro, and said, look, the evidence here, that issue alone, that they challenged 11 out of the 15 black jurors should get him a new trial, period. But it was two out of three and it didn't get it. Now it's being raised again. And the new situation is based on material that was found in these boxes, was that um, you see the DA writing notes about the race of the jurors. And so there's concrete evidence that race was actually considered. And that is a very, very powerful issue if um, Judge Tucker, again, and the whole process allows it to be considered. So that's number one. Number two is the star witness, whose name is Robert Chaubert, C-H-O-B-E-R-T, who uh, was convicted of... um, uh, creating a fire, uh, of burning down a school, of, you know, a lot, of lot of things. And he was a, um, uh, he was on parole and was in serious situation and he is their key witnesses. Well, lo and behold, they find in these boxes that he says to the DA, hey, where's, where's my money? Where's my money? And um, what could be more suggestive, I won't say conclusive, but certainly suggestive of um, perjury and uh, some kind of bribe. And so these are the two issues that are being focused on. There are others, um, all kinds of inadequate counsel, the fact that they didn't, the the lawyers on various occasions way back didn't challenge the exclusion of certain witnesses. I mean, Seba was a master at excluding everything from the record that could possibly get Mumia a new trial or acquit him. I mean, and they really went through every possible trick on denying, uh, you know, any opportunity. And so, uh, you know, there was a, um, a fourth person, Kenneth Freeman who was in um, Mumia's brother's car, the one that had been stopped, that had been involved, you know, and he had run away from the scene. Several witnesses testified that they saw a person who resembled exactly his looks, uh, run away from the scene very soon after the killing of uh, Faulkner, And um, that was never allowed into the record. So the, the exclusion of data, of important data was a key strategy of the prosecution. So the last thing I wanna talk about if we have time is the political context. Um, so are we up, do we have a minute or two? Okay, so uh, number one, uh, Mumia's illness has certainly created a lot of attention all over the world. It's been, Uh, People have been horrified. People have been terrified that he would die. And um, for many, uh, the first five days, they wouldn't let him communicate with anyone. Nobody knew where he was. Nobody ever did find out what hospital he was in. They wouldn't even. But they did finally concede after a huge fuss on letting his wife speak to him once a day for 15 minutes. But his lawyers couldn't speak to him his uh, the doctor of choice on the outside that he wanted as a consultant couldn't speak couldn't even know where he was couldn't look at the records and so on and so on so the, uh, the it was pretty outrageous to the logical um to a logical mind focused on justice on the other hand it was completely legal nothing they did was illegal all these things are system wide and happen to prisoners all the time and <clears throat> And the United States government, in its various forms, and the police, and everybody has made sure that this would continue. So a wonderful thing happened this time: that the United Nations—I don't know if you saw that—the United Nations Human Rights Council took a position because one of the things that's legal is when you, when a Mumia, they had a right to shackle Mumia. Now Mumia has this very serious skin illness. He was sick, he was, his heart was suffering from heart failure, all of that, and they still shackled him to his bed. And so we made a big campaign about that and the United Nations took a position, the United Nations Human Rights um, uh, Council took a position saying that shackling Mumia Abu Jamal is deplorable. And this of course went all over the world. So, you know, this is how, over time, the United States government is forced to change its positions, like on racial, on racial bias, on racial, you know, the the all those violations back in the 60s and 70s, and Jim Crow laws, and you know, beating up of young and killing of of young black men, black people, particularly men, and especially, uh, and it's happening now, happening too. So. The Black Lives Matter movement has certainly focused on that, and there's a lot of attention being paid to the killing of Black people. The and the role of the police as the enforcers, the jury, the judge, you know, the prosecutor, the judge, and the, you know, and and the jury making all the having all those powers in their hand. Well, Mumi is a case like that. You know, uh, the fraternal order of police has been able to control the narrative. Um, out of the 50, 35 people, po- policemen who were on the site the night of the incident, 15 immediately after the trial were charged with perjury and corruption and so on. They all had records from before, not even on Mumia's case, before of corruption. The level of racism and fascism that the, the police of Philadelphia uh, has and it's one of the most powerful police forces in the country, and we know how much power they have all over the country, but they have the most members, a lot of money and so on and so on. And um, their role in this case is, high, is very much connected to the issues of the Black Lives Movement.
0: That was Suzanne Ross, a New York City based clinical psychologist, a longtime anti imperialist activist, and representative of International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia Abu Jamal. Coming up in our second half hour, we'll be joined by another longtime supporter of Mumia. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Johanna Fernandez teaches 20th century U.S. history and the history of social movements in the Department of History at Baruch College. The award-winning academic and activist is the editor of Writing on the Wall, selected prison writings of Mumia Abu-Jamal, and one of the coordinators of the campaign to bring Mumia home. I asked her to give us an update of her own recent understanding of Mumia's plight. Has there been any recent success in terms of his being able to see you or his doctor or anybody?
2: Part of what we've seen over the last year is a complete shutdown of prisons, wherein prisoners are not able to see their attorneys or loved ones uh, or friends, So there is absolutely no visitations. There are no visitations to prisons anywhere in the United States that I'm aware of. Definitely not in Pennsylvania. Mumia fell ill first with COVID. Uh, He was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and he was hospitalized for approximately a week. But during that time, there was absolutely no contact between Mumia and his attorneys or even his wife. He was returned to the prison. And then he went to the infirmary because he was, again, experiencing heart or chest pain. And um, he was rushed to the hospital again, and it turned out that he, has, uh, he had blockage in two or three of his arteries and had been misdiagnosed with congestive heart failure the first time around. And of course, all of this care that he's received is a product of hundreds, if not thousands, of calls to the prison, to the DA's office, to the governor's office, to the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania demanding uh, that he not be killed through medical neglect. So we've succeeded in in pressuring the prison, to keep a close eye on Mumia and to give him uh, the best possible medical care that a prisoner can get. Uh, So there has been some success, which is that Mumia has survived uh, and that he was in fact able to call his wife a number of times immediately after surgery from the hospital that was a special um a special uh a special i don't know even what to call it uh it was a breaking of the rules uh because apparently when prisoners are hospitalized uh the prison is not um or doesn't feel that the prisoners have a right to speak to their loved ones because they're not in the prison. They're in some outside facility, and they allege that for security reasons, the prisoner uh, has to be isolated and shackled, by the way. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to anyone who's a human being and outside, operating outside of the logic of the Department of Corrections in the United States, because you think that if someone is ill and undergoing surgery, especially heart surgery, they need to be in touch with their loved ones during uh, this moment of distress but not according to the Department of Corrections uh, in Pennsylvania. But because of all of the pressure, um, exceptions were made. That's the term I was looking for. Exceptions were made, and Mumia was allowed to make brief calls uh, to his wife.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, you've said that it, that he's, he's shackled to his hospital bed, and, and you've said that shackling had its roots in slavery could you
2: m- explain that connection i think that what i've what i've said before in the past uh echoing james baldwin's writings and commentary and analysis um that history is not merely something to be read in the pa- read about the past that that unknowingly history is seen in the present and we're in fact unconsciously controlled by history in many ways. And I think that the apparatus of imprisonment and the institution of the police offer a dramatic example uh, of that fact. So if we read history, for example, the writings of Eric Williams uh, in his book, Capitalism and Slavery, we discover that it was only with the emergence of chattel slavery in the Americas that we see for the first time the global distribution of handcuffs, shackles, and fetters. Prior to the um, rise of slavery, shackles and handcuffs and fetters uh, were not were not used. Human beings didn't use handcuffs and shackles and fetters except under extreme conditions. But those um, tools of repression and containment had to be uh, massly used to keep. Africans from rebelling and to keep them in their place. And in order to bring um, enslaved Africans to heal. And that practice of shackling um, and handcuffing people, disproportionately people of color and black Americans in particular is, is now used in prisons. And even when prisoners are uh, hospitalized, especially when, prisoners are hospitalized. All of these are echoes um, of slavery. Um, And they speak to the barbarism of uh, the institution of incarceration in the United States. I'll just say that pregnant women who are prisoners are regularly shackled during labor. And Mumia was shackled before surgery and after surgery. That is just unacceptable as a human behavior. There's no reason for the shackling of someone who can barely walk because they have uh, a heart condition. This is gratuitous torture mm-hmm. of, of a prisoner. Um, you know, what about
0: his treatment while in jail? He got cirrhosis of the liver, uh, hep C, COVID-19, and, and problems with his heart. Uh, again, you, you categorically say this, the prisons caused these conditions or at least made, made them more likely. Has he been targeted or is this just a part of the whole system uh, of the whole— of? of the collapsing uh, attention
2: generally? Well, it's both because Mumia is a political prisoner. He's a veteran Black Panther who had been tracked by the counterintelligence program of the FBI uh, beginning at the age of 15 when he joined the Black Panther Party. He has a 500-page COINTELPRO File. And one of those files features a photograph of Mumia with the word dead written on the back. Uh, And as your listeners might know, Mumia was railroaded in the courts and sentenced to death. He served 28 and a half years on death row. And finally, a federal prison, uh, a federal court determined that his death sentence was achieved unconstitutionally and he was then resentenced to life in prison without parole. However, when this happened, the widow of the police officer, he's falsely accused of killing, um, literally told the New York Times that she wishes death upon Mumia, that she expects that he will be taken care of in the prison um, by the riffraff um, and the lower form elements that populate the prisons. Literally, those are her words to the New York Times. So because Mumia is accused of killing a white police officer and because he's a political prisoner, veteran Black Panther, the state reserves a special kind of venom um, and um, repression for him and others like him. But then there's a broader uh, problem, which is that in the United States, prisoners have so been dehumanized and disfigured in the public square that Americans accept that prisoners should be treated horrifically and inhumanely. So part of what we have in American prisons is, for example, meals that are prepared by contractors that um, cost under 75 cents. So the diet that prisoners eat you know, are, have access to, uh, is dead, is deadly, literally produces high blood pressure filled with sugar and salt preservatives. And so we know from all kinds of studies that, um, the diet to which prisoners are subjected ages them prematurely, but then the prisons are a site of violence that also, um, that also ages increasingly or disproportionately the black body and uh, the bodies of the disproportionately Latinx people um, in these dungeons. Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking about uh, a system, uh, an institution that uh, that deteriorates the health of human beings,
3: mm-hmm.
2: both psychologically and physically
0: on, on the, the, the racial violence of this. There, there were massive rallies for Mumia on his 67th birthday. Um, the, the man has fans all over the world. The George Floyd death got dogged press attention, uh, but Mumia's current health crisis and the issues around it uh, involving obvious corruption on the part of fraternity of officers and other lapses get zip. So how how do you explain that? I mean, is it part of that whole special category you were talking about? Or or why is there so much attention to George Floyd and so little to Mumia?
2: I'll be frank and say that the media um, is attracted to a kind of police terror porn against black lives and black bodies. And that's what the George Floyd murder represents. And uh, it's a horror, but I think that the replaying of that tape re-traumatizes racially oppressed people in this country and certainly uh, black people. and the lack, of, the lack of attention to Mumia's case has everything to do perhaps with the fact that there's a deep denial in this country about the existence of political prisoners. Like Mumia Abu-Jamal and other veterans of the 60s movements who've been imprisoned for decades for their political involvement, and, the, and for the positions they took um, in the 1960s. Mm. I don't know. You know, Mumia is a world-renowned uh, writer, an award-winning radio journalist. He's written like 14 or 15 books from prison. Um, he's escaped death numerous times. Uh, that's death at the hands uh, of the state while imprisoned. It makes no sense why a case like this one wouldn't be getting more attention, especially in this moment of COVID, uh, when there is a movement demanding that uh, that prisoners over the age of fifty and those with pre-existing conditions be released from prison because. Uh, prisons are COVID death traps. No, the priorities no. of the American media are, are, are driven by the fact that the media is, is controlled by approximately five uh, corpor- large corporations. Uh, and, and it's not in the interest uh, of those corporations to to advance, other stories like like those of prisoners like Mumia that raise questions about the entire organization of American society. I mean, if Mumia is set free, he has the potential to smash
0: the fraternity of police and, and a wide array of individuals. Wouldn't that system act to protect themselves And if so, what tactics would they use to protect themselves should Mumia be set free?
2: You mean the Fraternal Order of Police? So the Fraternal Order of Police has used Mumia over the last 40 years of his imprisonment and his case to stoke... uh, racialized fear among white people in this country, but also to justify and, uh, to prop up the expansion of mass incarceration. He's regularly depicted as an unrepentant quote, unquote, cop killer. Um, and that term is deployed, uh, viciously uh, against Mumia uh, and Black men in particular, uh, again, um, to to stoke racialized fear. And there's a complete disconnection between that term cop killer, which is associated um, with Black men and the reality. The majority of people who kill cops in America are white men. But in the post-civil rights movement era, um, the the this term "cop killer" and the the myth uh, of black men and their propensity for killing cops is tantamount, or came to replace um, the the myth of uh, of black. Men as rapists of, of white women, uh, so so there's so the Fraternal Order of Police, the largest um, police organization in the world, the largest police organization in the world, has been invested in in Mumia's imprisonment, um, in his execution, um, and and part of what they've done on the ground is frame Mumia. So the cops at the scene in Philadelphia, uh, the night that Mumia uh, was, was shot, beaten up uh, by the cops and then arrested, cooked up the crime scene. Um, and, and there's evidence of that. So if Mumia were to be released all of this uh, conspiracy and framing of Mumia would, would definitely put the fraternal order of police on trial, but also the entire apparatus of criminal justice in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and the United States on trial before a domestic and international audience. So that's definitely what's at stake And we all fear that if Mumia were to be released, we would have to mount a pretty sophisticated security uh, operation to protect his life. But I do not think for a second that they would have a stone to stand on because the level of corruption and tampering with evidence to obtain conviction in this case um, on the part of police is epic and the reason why why there isn't an an outcry about it is because there's a media blackout on this case and most Americans don't know the case. Ironically, more people in countries like Germany and France uh, and Haiti and South Africa know about the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal than many people even in Philadelphia. Hmm.
0: Well, Johanna, I, I'm afraid we've got to leave it there, but I, I really want to thank you for your uh, participation in this. And uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing and uh, hopefully we can uh, work together in some way to for the betterment of uh, Mumia and, and all other people. Uh, vi- victims of uh, this racial uh, profiling and racial policing. Johan- Johanna Fernandez, thank you very, very much. Thank you
2: so very much for the invitation.
0: you speaking with Johanna Fernandez, a writer, educator, and speaker based at the Department of History at Baruch College in New York. Follow her online at johannafernandez.net. Winding up the show, I got in touch with the MOVE family. They too have suffered at the hands of extraordinary state oppression, at the hands of the cops who arrested nine of its members in '78 and forcing them to endure 40 years of punishment. In '85, the police bombed their home, killing 11 of them. Prominent activist Mike Africa joined me to talk about where things sit with them in 2021. The last member of the Move Nine to leave the jail was Chuck Sims uh, in February of 2020. Uh, so all of you are back together again for the first time since the 70s. What was that day like? Seeing all of your family back after so long?
3: Uh, it was it was an interesting moment. Uh, everybody home for the first time in 40 plus years. It was really it was really powerful. It was really special. It was. It was a relief to see everybody home, you know. Um, yeah, it was it was special.
0: So, so what is the family's focus at the present time now that they're all together? What what are they uh, pressing on with these days? Well, a
3: lot of, a lot of people spent a lot of time in prison, right? So, a lot of what's happening now is people are really trying to regroup, and they're trying to. Um, you know, they're trying to get their bearings and, and understand what they just went through. I mean, it's a very traumatizing experience, you can imagine. And so, um, their focus is uh, mostly, you know, kind of taking care of themselves, I think. Um, my focus, as far as a member of the organization and um, someone who who heard what John Africa was pushing for, for so long, uh, my focus is to make sure that the People understand that the um the 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 need to protect life is imminent, and um, that's what I've been trying to uh, to do in my protests against police brutality, uh, against uh, unjust prison sentences, uh, for the fight to to get uh, members out of uh, people out of prison that that are put in prison unjustly. So, I think a lot of us have different missions personally, but the organization is still trying to get the bearings together.
0: Mike, we're coming in on the 36th anniversary of the bombing of the move home by the Philadelphia police, which killed six adults and five children. And I noticed that the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton actually collected the bones of at least two of the children without their your consent. Uh, I mean, these kids were bombed by the police and their bones are acceptable for study. Nobody from your home agreed to this. How on earth did that situation come about?
3: Um, You know, I was six years old when that happened. Um, I think that's something that we're still trying to figure out how they, why they, um, who are they. You know, there's a whole lot of questions about that. Um, It needs to be an investigation so that we can figure that out ourselves.
0: On the anniversary, it's going to be a busy day. Um, uh, The exact time the, the bomb was launched. What do you and, and the family plan to do on that day?
3: The, um, the, act- the activities that we have planned are to, um, there's going to be some members of the organization that are going to speak um, and talk about what they remember. There's going to be some members of the community that remember what happened, that are going to do some speaking. And we're going to make sure that we lift up and, re- and remember the names of the people whose lives were lost.
0: Uh, You also have a a book coming out on the 13th, uh, 50 Years on a Move, the History of the Philadelphia-Based Move Organization. Are there slices of information in this book that even people who are actually familiar with your group won't know much about?
3: You know, for for over the years, we've talked about a lot of different examples about the history of the organization and the stance that we took against injustices. I think the highlight of the book for me was a protest against um, a, talk show, a talk show host who uh, handcuffed a monkey um, for the monkey being on his set and acting out. And then shortly after that, the next week, MOVE members went to that studio and handcuffed the host to show them how the monkey feels. Um, so there's examples like that that people may have heard about, but they may have never heard the full story. And they probably never saw pictures of it.
0: Now, let, let me ask you about Mumia because he's he's suffering uh, for for years. I mean, coming up on forty years uh, incarceration. Uh, uh, might I ask? And, and you and, and several members of the Move family are also involved in this. Could you explain why his freedom, in particular, is is particularly significant and important to the Move family? You know,
3: there's a the thing about about people that support us. We, you know, me, um, we, we, we want to support the people that support us. And because because Mumia was uh, using his journalistic platform to speak out about the injustices that were happening to our family, you know, when he got arrested and targeted, we used uh, the, the time and resources that we could to support him.
0: Are there any particular kinds of tactics that you're embracing in his name? I basically just you know, mobilizations or is there anything in particular that you you should mention?
3: A lot of what's happening is the same as we've been doing. We may change it up a little bit, but protesting, writing letters to um, to uh, inform um, a to officials to inform them. Uh, and trying to get them some pressure so that they can feel the need to, to do something about his situation. Um, But our our taxes don't, don't change much.
0: Okay. Well, is there anything that, uh, you know, people listening uh, can be doing in order to support you and and the family and uh, your, your various uh, concerns maybe right away?
3: Yeah. So 50 years on the move is out now. And, um, as a way to do two things at once, I created this with a partner um, and with support from the family um, for the purpose of, number one, getting information out to the people to, to learn a history about the organization so that people can know and, you know, get involved. But then also it does another thing. It supports financially because, you know, we are, we are paying for this struggle out of our pocket. We're paying for this out of our own work from our nine to fives. And any support that we could get financially from from people it helps. So, people could go to my if people could go to my website uh, www. There's a place where they can um, purchase the book and um, get a history lesson and support this movement at the same time.
0: Okay. Mike Africa, it's really great talking to you again. Thank you so much for sparing sharing a little bit of time and and a little bit of your your life with our listeners.
3: Thank you, Mike. It's good to connect. On the move.
0: Mike Africa Jr. is the son of two of the Move 9 and an outspoken activist in Philadelphia. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Gaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiowak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.